to, but man, putting it into practice, that's a difficult thing. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I know what your bulletin says, there's a little bit of typo there, but 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8, picking up where we left off last week. Peter, just as a reminder, the, the Spirit is writing through Peter that he may know, or that we may know, how to serve a holy God. And chapter 1 is all about Peter reminding us of the greatness of the gospel that has been preached. Of the greatness of the gospel that we have received. That no longer are we enemies of God, but now we are children of God with this great hope and this great thing that rests before us in all of eternity. And it is upon that foundation that he gives a calling in chapter, at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 to say, you are to be holy, you're to be set apart, you're to be different because your Father is holy and because your Father is different. And then, as we began to look at last week, he begins to unfold for these, believe, these young believers and for us as well, how, what does that look like? It's easy for us to say, hey, you need to be holy. You need to be different. You need to be set apart. But the practice of that is a completely different thing. What does that mean? What does it look like in our life? Last week we explored one way that Peter gives us, and it is a difficult word that we do not like. It's the word submission. We're to be submissive to the authorities that God has placed in our lives, even when they don't deserve it. I mean, you think about it, he says, be submissive to the authority of civil government. Be, a, be submissive to the emperor. And yet, who was the emperor when these folks were, when this was written? It was an emperor that was persecuting them. Not easy. He says, be submissive to your boss. But who was the boss he was speaking to? It was the master of a slave. He says, be submissive to a spouse. Be submissive to your husbands. Be honor your wife even if they're not a believer. Not easy things he's called us to do. Being holy, being set apart, being different than our culture is not an easy thing. And this morning, he gives us another word that we don't really like to talk about, suffering. He says, if you want to be holy, if you want to be different the way that your Father in heaven is different, if you want to be holy as a child of God, then your response to suffering must be different. Specifically, your suffering at the hands of others. Not easy. Not easy. And yet we have the grace of God to how allows us to run after this, to pursue it. So if you would this morning, if you would stand that we may honor the reading of God's word. We're going to start, like I said, in First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And we'll be reading through the entirety of the rest of that chapter. First Peter chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now though, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. But it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for, the, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we have heard over this past year, we've heard over these past few weeks, Lord, that you have called us into holiness. Lord, that you have called us to be set apart, to be different from the world that's around us, that others may see how we act and that they may know you through it. But Lord, we confess to you this morning that this is hard. Lord, though we are though there are many in this room and, and that we are believers and we have put our faith and trust in you, that we have called you Lord, our flesh still likes to rear up, our flesh still likes to rebel, and we hear words like submission and suffering, and Lord, we want to run from those as far as we can. And Father, yet we read in your word, Lord, that we are to be different in these areas. Lord, that the world would see how we act in these areas, Lord, and they would be confounded, Lord, that they would ask the question, what makes you this way? Lord, and that we would give the answer, Christ. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would open our ears and our hearts to your word, Lord, that we would hear clearly, and Lord, that we would apply it, Lord, that we would change and be different. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Before we get too far into our text this morning and, and the main subject of the text, which is responding to the reality of suffering, responding to how we suffer at the hands of others and how we respond, we should respond to that differently as believers, I, I just want to address really quickly, and this isn't in your slides, but I want to address this really quickly. There are two spots in this passage that are probably two of the most difficult um, passages to, to wrestle over, maybe in the New Testament, certainly. And so I just want to point them out to you. We are not going to have uh, the time this morning nor be able to go into the depth that I would like to go to be able to answer some of the questions that arise here. But I'm just going to give you a, a quick overview um, here so that it doesn't, we don't get away from other things as we go on. Because 
Peter, when he writes this, he's not focusing on these two areas. He's really focusing on suffering and how we to respond. But I want you to see them. I want you to, to go home and to study them and, and to pour over them and to ask good questions and ask uh, mature believers and, and commentaries and different things um, because I think it's good that we, we look at the hard things. Um, so the first one that we see here, and again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but the first one in verse 19 I'm going to back up actually a little bit to 18. It says that, um, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That verse kind of gives us a little, because a lot of theologians and a lot of interpreters a little bit of pause, because we're not sure what's really happening there. What does it mean that when Jesus was made alive in the spirit, that he preached or that he proclaimed to the spirits that were in prison? And oftentimes there are three theories that are given this. And again, I'm, we're going to go through this very quickly and you're going to have lots of questions when we get done with this. And that's okay. I'll let you wrestle with that and we can talk about that later. I'll buy you lunch, I'll buy you Dairy Queen and we can sit down and do this in more in depth. All right? But there are three, the first of which would say that Jesus, after he died, went to hell and preached to those that were there that they may know salvation. We, in general, would throw that out. And this is why. Two reasons. One, we see throughout Scripture that death is a cataclysmic event after which there is no ability for salvation. Okay? Nowhere in Scripture do we see after you die that you ever have an option. Christ and the Word of God again and again proclaim, make the decision now because there's coming a day when that no decision will no longer be available to you. Salvation only happens on this side of death. And so for that reason, we would very, be very wary of someone that would teach that, that there is an option after death to come to salvation. We would, we would automatically, that would throw up a lot of red flags. The second is that we see in various places throughout Scripture, and Christ, in fact, Christ himself says that after the cross, that he went to glory, that he went to paradise, that he joined the Father. And if... And, the preaching, the teaching that Christ went to hell after that and suffered or even that he proclaimed here, that creates a problem with not only the rest of Scripture, but it, it questions the sufficiency of the cross. And that, again, goes against everything that we see in Scripture. The cross was sufficient for all of salvation. There was no need for anything else. His blood was sufficient. So we get that idea. The, the third thing that we see there that um, may strike us as a little odd is is that word preached proclaimed when it that that phrase when we really take it in the greek and begin to unfold it the idea there is not so much evangelism okay it's not preaching proclaiming for the sake of of changing someone's mind it's more like what you would do after a victory and you would stand on the mountain plant your flag and be like we won okay at that point you're not trying to change your enemy's mind at that point you're saying it's done this is victory. And so for that reason, that theory would throw up a lot of red flags for us, and we would, in general, say that's probably not what's going on here. The other two, however, there can be a lot of discussion on. All right, And the other two would be that Peter is saying that Christ spoke through Noah, which is what he talks about in the rest of that context, that Christ spoke through Noah to those that were disobedient in Noah's era, that they may hear the word of God and that they may repent, though we, as Peter says, they didn't. 
And so that's one idea. The other would be that Christ, again, as we just said, that after Christ's, after Christ's death and resurrection, that he proclaimed from heaven all, to all the spirit world, to all that would hear, the victory has been won. The victory has been won. And so we have a couple of different ideas there. Um, and again, lots of people have lots of discussions on that. But I wanted to give you just kind of an overview of that because we don't want to avoid difficult things. Um, but again, it's not really the main point of the passage. The other one there that gives us a little bit of difficulty is in verse 21. Peter is talking about, uh, he's talking about Noah and the flood. And he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We would read that and we would say baptisms. We read that phrase, baptism, which saves you, and we go, as Baptists, especially, we go, ah, like that causes much consternation and hand-wringing, right? right? Like we read that and we're like, I don't want to read that again. That makes me nervous. But what does it say right after that? What does it say right after that? There's an important little phrase that we can't glance over. It says there in that verse right after, it says that it's not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal. What Peter is saying there is baptism is the, is the thing that go, we go through, that we go through in order to evidence other things. He says, it doesn't wash anything. It doesn't cleanse you. But rather, it is an appeal. It is an outward expression of the faith that you have in the resurrection. Because it's the resurrection alone that saves. It's the cross alone that saves. It's Christ's work that does that baptism just washes the outside it's it's just the thing that we go through as an act of obedience let me ask you this question because it this ties in and and you may have to think about this for a little bit what saved noah was it the ark or was it his obedience was it was it god what saved noah it was not the ark was the ark a way for salvation? Yes. And it was an outward expression of obedience. But ultimately, it was God that saved Noah. It was Noah's obedience to God's word and his faith. Can you imagine the faith that it took for Noah? Noah had never seen rain before. Noah didn't know what a flood was, really. He's like, what in the heck? God's like, I'm going to cover the whole world in water. You're going to need to build a really big boat. And Noah had faith in the salvation of God. And so he built the ark. We have never seen eternity. We can't see it. We can't understand it. We can't know it. And yet God proclaims to us that because of our sin that we are in need of salvation. Though we have never met Christ face to face in a humanly form. He says that this is the means by salvation. You must put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You must believe in his blood that it covers you. And be baptized as an act of obedience towards me. And so we put our faith in him. Baptism did not save us. It does not cleanse us from the dirt, as Peter says. But rather, it is a first act of obedience. And it's an outward expression of our faith in the God who has called us to salvation. Okay, hopefully that puts your mind at ease just a little bit. I realize that 
you may have a lot more questions than you have answers right now, but I, want, I wanted to address those two issues before we stepped into this other thing because this is what I, what I generally don't want to happen. I don't want you to read this passage and go, well, those two pa- we didn't talk about those two things. Those two things are kind of worrisome to me. I want you to know that, yeah, there's difficult things to struggle with, but we need to look at them, and we need to look at them at the context of entire word of God and allow the word of God to speak to us about how to interpret these two things. And so we, I wanted to address those really quickly. All right, that's the mini-sermon. You get two for one today. That's the mini-sermon. Okay, now we're going to step into the, to the real thing. Peter here is transitioning, right? He's transitioning from the first thing. He, he's been talking about the gospel. He's been talking about how we're to be a holy people. And now he's given us some practical ways to do that. The first practical way to show our holiness, or really God's holiness in us, is that we submit to the, the authorities that he's put in place. It's not an easy thing, but it's a, it's a necessary thing, and it speaks volumes to the world around us. He continues on, he continues on by talking about suffering. He says, look, I know what's going on. I know what you're experiencing. I know that it's difficult. But this is a means by which you can show the difference that God has done in you. This is a means by which the world can look at you and say, whoa, who is this God that they serve? Who is this Jesus that they speak of? Peter speaks of the reality of suffering. Just like he did in chapter 1. You'll remember in chapter 1 he says he talks about the reality, the, the, the commonplace thing of trials. That times God puts things in our lives that our faith may be made sure that our faith may indeed mature even. But Peter here just, he talks about the reality of suffering. He talks about that the reality of suffering often happens at the hands of others. The passage that he quotes from there in verse 10 through verse 12, that, that passage that he's doing is from Psalms 34, 12 through 13. Go back and read Psalms 34 sometime this week. You know what's happening there? David is running from one of his sons. One of his sons has tried to overtake the throne. He has done some despicable things towards David and towards the rest of the family. And he has run David out of town. And David is responding to the wrong that has been done to him by his own son. Peter says this is how we respond. But we understand that suffering at the hands of others happens. Matthew 10, verse 22 says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And in another part he says, Don't be surprised when you are hated because they hated me first. Jesus, Jesus talks about the reality of suffering. Now for many of us, I would guess that we have not experienced suffering because of our faith necessarily, though some of us have. We have not experienced what these folks were experiencing. But we have experienced harm at the hands of others. All of us have had our hearts broken by family members and friends. All of us have felt probably betrayed at one point or the other. It happens. And it happens even when we're doing good. It happens even when we're the ones doing good. He says there in verse 13, Now, 
Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. He says, normally this shouldn't happen. Normally, if you're doing good, you shouldn't be harmed. You shouldn't be persecuted. However, if it does happen, when it happens, sometimes sometimes we suffer at the hands of others even when we're in the right, even when we've done all we can do towards them, right? We've all experienced this. We've tried to show kindness to an individual. We've tried to love on an individual and The result is not kindness returned, but rather it's harm. It's painful when that happens. Why does this happen? Why does this happen that we suffer at the hands of others even when we've done good? Well, it happens for various reasons. It happens because we live in a broken world. It happens because we are surrounded by people that are fleshly and and they don't seek after Christ. It happens because we all have sin in our lives. It happens so that God may be glorified. It says there in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it happens so that God may be glorified in the midst of those that are sinning. It happens so that they might believe. So that they're put to shame. Why? So that they may see what they are doing is wrong and that they may turn to Christ. Sometimes we go through difficult things that others may see Jesus. That is hard for us to understand sometimes. It's hard for us to fathom. But sometimes God uses his children going through difficult things so that others may see Christ and know him. And honestly, if that's what it takes, would you say it's worth it? Would you say it's worth it? That you experience short-term grief on this end of eternity, so that a family member may join you? So that they see how you treat them in return, so that you, they see Christ in you, that it's worth it? It's a difficult, that's a difficult question for some of us to answer, isn't it? Because as fleshly people, we're, we're selfish and we want to say, no, like, I don't want to go through suffering. I don't want to bear with that. I don't want to deal with that. And yet we're reminded, as we will be reminded in a moment, of the example of Christ. What did he suffer? So that you no salvation that is the example we hold ourselves to so what should our be our response if there's a reality of suffering that suffering takes place at the hands of others even when we do good how what should our response be well first we should give blessing instead of revenge we should give blessing instead of revenge verse 9 of the passage that we just read Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, for to this you were you were called that you may obtain blessing. Matthew 5, 43 says this. Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter says, we can't seek out vengeance. Rather, we seek blessing. We seek forgiveness, Christ tells us in other places. Christ tells us, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. He gives the example of the Father. Have you ever thought about that? The God of all creation, the God of holiness, the God of justice. He sees us and he sees some that are righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he sees others who are not. And yet he sends rain on both. The sun rises for both. That's grace. That is common grace from our Lord in heaven. And it is Jesus says it is an example to you and to me of the holiness, the difference that to be is to be in us. When people do us harm, our response is not to immediately strike back, but rather our response should be to pray and to bless. This is a tough question. But when's the last time that someone hurt you in your natural in your not your natural response, but your response was to pray that the Lord would bless them. To pray that the Lord would honor them. To pray that the Lord would do something good in their life that day. Holiness is not easy. Holiness is only accomplished through the grace of God living in us. This is why the world looks at it and says, this is weird, as our princess told us this morning. That is weird. Yes, it is. You're right. So we respond with blessing instead of revenge. We also respond in hope. We just read, why do we do this? That we may obtain blessing. And then skipping over to verse 14. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We have hope. We have blessing. When we suffer, our, we should be reminded, even in our grief, we should be reminded of the temporary nature of what we are going through and the eternal, unimaginable grace that lies before us. When's the last time that someone looked at you and said, man, I just don't understand how you're responding to that. I don't understand how you could be hurt like that by somebody else and that you could still have the hope and the joy that you have. Now, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't grieve. Certainly not. We grieve. But what does Paul tell us? We, don't, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. It's different. Our grief isn't self-consuming. Our grief doesn't overwhelm us. Our grief is, is there because we miss the person or because we've been hurt, but it's not selfish. 
or it shouldn't be, but rather it should be always founded upon the the foundation of the gospel and the inheritance that Peter talks about in chapter 1. So we, our response is wrapped up in blessing towards others. Our response should incorporate the reminder of the hope that we've been given. And it should also be wrapped up and, and shown in the response that we give. It says, always being prepared, verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is the evangelism plan. That we are set aside as holy. And that when people look at submission in our lives, when they look at our response to suffering, especially suffering at the hands of another, when we offer blessing and forgiveness freely, that they would look at us and go, I don't get that. Why do you do that? And we say, Christ. That is our answer. Why do you do that? What is the response for the hope that is inside of you? What is the response for the joy that's inside of you? Christ. Let me tell you about what he's done in my life, why I can respond this way, because trust me, there are parts of me that don't want to respond this way, but I respond this way because of what he has done in my life, because I harmed him. It was my sin that put him on that cross, in part. I was the one that reviled him. I was the one that stood in the crowd and cried, crucify. And yet he showed grace. And so how much more do I show grace to my fellow brother, my fellow sister, my, my fellow man? I'm ready to respond. And let me share how he can do this for you. I love, though, that he says there, he says, be ready to give a response. But he says, what else? He says, do it with gentleness and respect. This is where the world really doesn't get. We're ready to give an answer, Right? We are ready to give answers when people allow us to speak. But in our culture, how often is that answer filled with kindness and respect? Rather, our tongue is like a sword and it is sharp and it is biting. And when we have a chance to respond to a wrong that's done to us, boom, we take our shot, right? Like we go after it. We, and especially if it's someone that knows us well, we know them well too, right? We know where to hit. We know what button to push. That's why Paul reminds us, when you give this answer, we do it with gentleness, we do it with kindness, we do it with respect. That's hard. That looks different, doesn't it? In a world where we want to jump on Facebook and, and talk about all the ways that we've been wronged in the world, when we want to jump on Twitter, when our phone is con- when, when our ability to whine is connected to our hand, and we jump on it and we say, look at what wrong has been done to me. To give the answer with gentleness and respect. It's contrary to what the world says. People are going to see that and they're going to go, what in the world? What in the world? doesn't mean by the way that we we have to be pushovers doesn't mean that we have to let people run all over us all the time doesn't mean that we're weak humbleness is not weakness kindness and gentleness they don't have to be weakness there's something incredibly different but this stuff is hard so again peter knowing 
knowing that this is difficult, he gives us a couple of examples. He, he turns back around. He says, let me, let me show you why we do this. Let me show you how this is done. And he gives the example of Jesus Christ, and he gives the example of Noah. Now, it's interesting here that he does this. And as I was thinking about this this week, you know, there's lots of pastors that I've heard that people have talked about. And, and people may say this about me, too, and that's great. But they say it in a negative light. They say, man, all that guy ever talks about, all he ever preaches about is the gospel. All he ever talks about is Christ, right? Like you've heard people say this, and they're not saying it in a positive light. They're like, man, I wish that guy would get off that topic. Man, he just all he talks about is Jesus. And all he talks about is the gospel. I just can't take it anymore. Man, you got a problem with Peter then. Peter's like, first chapter. This is the gospel. This is what Christ has done for us. This is awesome. Second chapter, you need to be holy. Why? Because this is the gospel, and this is Christ, and this is awesome. Third chapter, this is submission. This is what you should do. Why? Because Jesus did this for you, because this is the gospel, and he's awesome. End of chapter 3, you should suffer differently. Why? Because this is the gospel, and this is Jesus, and this is awesome. You got a problem with Peter if you don't like a pastor talking about Jesus. You got a problem with Peter, you got a problem with the Word of God because everything goes back to the foundation. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. We sit here and we say, I can't submit. That's right, you can't if your foundation is not Christ. It says, I cannot suffer at the hands of others and be joyful about it. I cannot suffer at the hands of others and pray for them that they would be forgiven. Pray for them that they would be blessed today. I can't do that. That's right, you can't unless your cornerstone is Christ. That's why Peter keeps circling back around in this letter. He says, this is only possible in the gospel. It's only possible if you're truly a child of God. So he goes back to Christ and he, and he includes Noah here. He reminds us that they suffered though they were righteous. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. There was no sin found in him. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And yet he laid down his life. He suffered at the hands of others that they may know God. This is the example that we have before us. When we say we want to look more like Christ, welcome to the blueprint. He suffered, though he was righteous. Noah does the same. Noah is described in Genesis. He's described as a righteous man. He's described as a man in good standing before the eye of the Lord. And yet, can you imagine the ridicule that he went through for building a boat? Conservative estimates place it at 50 years-ish that it took him to build it. Can you imagine 50 years of building a boat that big when no one had ever seen it rain? You don't think he wasn't mocked? You don't think it was like, hey, that's crazy Noah over there? You don't think people talked about him behind his back? You don't think people came up and said things to him? Noah suffered. Noah was ridiculed. He had to have been. And yet they responded differently. They responded differently than that. 
They didn't strike out. They didn't look for their own favor. They didn't stand there and say, woe is me. But rather, what do we see in 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says, When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is, the, this is God in flesh, the ruler and creator of everything. Everything that was made was created through Jesus. How easy it would have been to him to look at Pilate and say, Look, you little ant, I am king. This is what's going to happen. How easy would it have been for him on the cross to call out all the angels and for fire to consume everything there. To him say, forget it. But he responds differently so that we may know God. Noah responds differently. Depending on how you look at this word here, Noah is pleading with people to listen to the judgment that is coming and to say, you need to be on this boat. I know it doesn't make sense, but you need to be here with me. Though no one listened, they responded differently. And here's the great thing. They were not forgotten. The flood didn't last forever. The waters went down. And all of humanity came through the family of Noah. God used Noah to bless the world again. They were not forgotten. God promises in a rainbow. He gives great promises to Noah of what he's going to do in the future. All the more when we look at Christ. It says there in verse 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Christ's death is not unnoticed by all of heaven. But he has returned to the place of glory from which he started, with all of creation being subjected to him under his feet, under his rule. They suffered though they were righteous. They responded differently because of who their king was and who their Lord was. And they were not forgotten. Brothers and sisters, believers in the room, when we suffer, for righteousness sake. When we suffer that others may know God. When we suffer differently than the world would say we should handle it. We will not be forgotten. We will not be forgotten. Jesus says, blessed are those who persecuted for those are, theirs is the kingdom of God. One day we will enter into a place of righteousness. We will enter into a place of holiness and glory that is beyond anything and will, will dwarf anything that we experience here. But God calls us into action now that others may see it, that others may see your good works and that they may know and glorify the Father. So as we step into a time of response, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. As we step into a, a time of response, maybe this morning, you need to confess before the Lord. I have had people wrong me. In fact, I'm going through it right now. Someone is wronging me. I did nothing wrong. I was in the right, and yet they, are, they have stabbed me in the back. They are talking about me. They are harming me in some way. And my response has not been good. My response has not been good. Lord, forgive me. Help me to respond the way you responded to me. Help me to respond 
and holiness. Help me to respond with blessing instead of revenge. Help me to forgive. Maybe that's, maybe that's the cry of your heart this morning. Maybe this morning you just needed the reminder of what Christ did for you. You've sat here and you've heard the gospel over and over again. But you need the reminder that he was righteous and he died for you who was unrighteous. That he suffered at the hands of individuals. That he suffered the hands of sinners so that you may know God. He suffered at the hands of sinners so that they may know God. What does Christ proclaim on the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's his heart towards those that were persecuting him, towards those that were crucifying him, and that's his heart towards you this morning. And he invites you this morning. He desires a relationship with you. He desires to save you from the consequences from hell. Save you from the consequences of your sin. He invites you into that to live a life that's different. I would invite you this morning, don't put that off. Don't put that off. Talk to one of us about what that looks like. Maybe you're afraid of coming forward. That's fine. Find us in the back. Find someone that's sitting next to you. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're, you're scared about the baptism thing. That's, a, that's For some people, the idea of getting in front of a bunch of people and doing that is terrifying. I get that. Don't, don't let that keep you from him this morning. We'll talk about that. We'll figure that out. Don't let that keep, be what keeps you from him this morning, though. You don't know when you're going to get another chance. You don't know if you're going to get another chance. Let me pray.